in here. And I just thought, man, I don't know how we did this for several weeks, not being able to gather together. Uh, our church, when we gather, I love what John said in worship, when we gather, it is not a production. It's not a performance. Uh, you can watch a performance online, okay? You cannot attend a family reunion online, amen? And this is what, this is what Cross of Grace is. It is a weekly family reunion around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, and around the word of God. And so we've, for the last few months, we've had a number of our members come up and read the word. We've loved that. Uh, and so we're going to repeat that a few times during the year, coming up soon at Advent. So Advent, we'll, we'll redo uh, family readings, and then we'll also probably implement those with Easter season and some other times of the year, because uh, we've just loved it. We love displaying our family and who we are, all right? So with that, we're going to turn to God's word. Our family reunion is centered around God's word. And would you stand for the reading of God's word with me, brothers and sisters? Mark chapter 13. This is God's word. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of, his mess, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? This is God's word. Father, we pray you bless the preaching of your word today. Amen. You may take a seat. Well, as the Korean War broke out on the Korean Peninsula, many Americans assumed that it would be an easy victory for Amer the American military, especially after the dominant display of American military power in World War II. So, an advance force of about 440 Americans under the command of Brad Smith went to meet the opposing forces and were cheered on by the South Koreans as they walked through the streets as if they'd already won the battle. In other words, they saw American troops coming and thought, we got this, we're done, this thing's over. They soon realized, though, that they were woefully unprepared for the task at hand. Equipment that the Americans were using had not been updated since World War II, and much of the equipment had fallen into disrepair or disuse. Uh, as the, the, the American military began mobilizing in Korea, they realized that some of their radios did not work. Some of their machine guns did not work. And that's a piece of equipment you don't want to find out it doesn't work when you need it, Right? In addition to that, as Soviet-supplied tanks began to advance in Korea, the Americans discovered, imagine this, that their bazookas were not able to pierce the armor of the Soviet tanks, and the only thing the bazookas seemed to do was annoy the tanks. Not good. In one instance, a squad of soldiers was so unprepared that they were forced to break into a Korean schoolhouse to steal a map of Korea so they could navigate the terrain around them. They were woefully unprepared. Now, Jesus wants to ensure in this passage that we as Christians, in what we will face, are not similarly woefully unprepared. Jesus, in this passage, is going to outline that turbulent days are coming. Uh, 
more turbulent than the Korean conflict. In fact, this begins with Jesus talking about the grand temple that was the center of the Jewish religion, the center of the Jewish uh, cultural identity. And Jesus begins, he, he kicks it off by saying, that will be so destroyed that one brick will not left, be left on another. So Jesus is telling them uh, in the Gospels that, that his actions, his life, death, and resurrection will usher in what Jesus often refers to as the last days. If you listen to Jesus, he basically has two epochs in mind as he teaches. He has the former days, what was before Christ, and the latter days with and after Christ. So he, he's describing these latter days as tumultuous. So the disciples, like us, Ask two questions. Tell us, Jesus, when will these things be? And what's the sign that these things are coming about? And I bet you anything, if you're glancing down and looking at the next verses, you're like, oh man, here we go. Here we go. Because this is this is one of those passages that 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 people, the Christians can treat almost like a national treasure movie. Where it's like, all right, we're going to get the symbols, we're going to get the signs, we're going to take them over to this place, and we're going to put in the code, and it's going to unlock another secret. We're going to take this back to Ezekiel, that's going to unlock another secret. We take this Ford Revelation, and then we got a map, and it's got the Pope, and it's got the Soviet Union, and it's got, if, and if you take the third letter of every fourth verse, it spells out Biden backwards. <laughs> right? Hey, listen, I know you're laughing, but you've probably been like me down some of those internet rabbit trails. You're like, you know, that's where we tend to go. We want Jesus to like back up our end times theory or not. We want to know, is this, is this about the coronavirus? I've heard some people say, this is it. It's it. It's right here. This is the coronavirus, what Jesus was talking about. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because in this passage, Jesus does not answer the disciples the way they want an answer. The disciples want a list of clear names and dates and events handed to them so they'll be like, okay, good, thanks, we got it. Jesus does not do that. Instead, he, he gives them essentially kind of themes, some specific events, but a lot of themes, a lot of generalities, because he has a different agenda than the disciples. The disciples want to know everything that's going to happen, uh, just to know what's going to happen. Jesus wants them to know a little bit about what's going to happen so they will be prepared for what will happen. Jesus has a different agenda. The disciples want the Da Vinci Code. Maybe we want the Da Vinci Code. Jesus wants them to be prepared. That's the agenda in this passage. So you see that agenda in Jesus saying twice in the passages, or the passages we're going to read it, be on guard. That's repeated three times in Mark 13 in this discourse. It means to take, uh, to, to pay attention, to take heed, to, to stand ready, or like next week we'll talk about it. It, it means wake up. <laughs> Being on guard means this, that Jesus has given the disciples a deposit. He's given them the knowledge of who he is. He's given them the knowledge of how to follow him as disciples. And he wants these disciples to guard that deposit, to hold on to what he's given them. Notice this is important, Christians. Jesus does not suddenly lay out a different agenda of discipleship in the last days than in the normal days. It's not as though, okay, Revelation 1's starting up, now we're, like, now we're off the rails and we need to, you know, gather nuclear weapons as Christians to form our nation state. Like, that's not, he doesn't say that. He says, discipleship is the same, but will be more urgent in the last days. That's what he's saying. So, the big idea, I'm going to sum up this way. In the turbulent last days, tighten your grip on Jesus. 
It's going to get bumpy. It's going to get turbulent. So tighten your grip on Jesus. Jesus is going to give three encouragements toward that. First encouragement, do not be alarmed by turmoil. Tighten your grip on Christ. Verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead people astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These, this is key, these are but the beginning of the birth pains, but be on your guard. Now, the question that hangs over this passage, the question we're going to need to answer, is one of the thorniest questions in the passage. Uh, when, I, when I read the commentaries and scholars on Mark chapter 13, it seems as though they disagreed about a whole lot in this passage, but they did agree on one thing. This is one of the most difficult passages to interpret. And so you're like, well, thank you. I'm glad there's agreement at least on that. This is one of the key questions of the passage. Is Jesus talking about only things that will happen in the lifetime of the disciples in front of him, or is he talking about the end of history and the end of all things? Well, remember that he begins the speech talking about the temple, right? That's a specific thing he's talking about, the temple being destroyed. And that did happen within the lifetime of the disciples in A.D. 70, so Jesus is, is pointing ahead to the destruction of the temple. So we know, okay, that's a timestamp. We know AD 70. But if Jesus was saying that all of Mark 13 would come true in the lifetime of the disciples, he would be a false prophet because Jesus did not return in the first century in the Mark 13 uh, verses 24 to 27 way. So what do we do with that? Well, we also notice that some events in our text point to the future, such as in verse 10, the gospel being proclaimed to all nations, meaning the gospel is being proclaimed to every tribe, tongue, language, and people. So that did not happen either in the first century. Didn't go to uh, far uh, East Asia, didn't go to South America, lots of places didn't go. Still has not gone to every corner of the globe. And as we'll see next week, Jesus has not returned in power and glory where every eye can see him. So what do we do with this text then? Well, I think verse 8 is a tremendous help. Verse 8, notice this phrase, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, I have, we have, my wife and I have had three kids, and so I know, I do not know this firsthand, but secondhand, I have observed something about the childbirth process. This is as much as I will uh, venture to offer about the childbirth process, because all the moms are getting real nervous. They're like, you're going to give us childbirth advice? No, I'm going to make this observation that when the birth pains start, they do not get easier after that. Anybody agree with that? Anybody having a kid that like, it started out one way and then it just got easier? Was that anybody's labor? I don't think so, right? Not that what I've observed. In fact, this tends to be what happens. Birth pains start out rough and they get rougher and they get faster and closer together. And then my wife is looking at me like she wants to hurt me by the end. And hurt the doctors around us. And saying, you did this, right? Stuff like that. That's what happens. It doesn't get happier. It gets angrier before the new life enters the world. So what do we do with this metaphor? These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Well, this is what I think Jesus is saying. 
the events that Jesus is talking about in Mark 13, much of them will occur in the lifetime of the disciples, the temple being destroyed, wars, uh, the abomination, as I'm going to talk about in a second. But I think he's also referencing a pattern that will continue until the end of history, meaning that these are how the birth pangs are going to start, and through history, they will increase and get worse until a final culmination at the end of history. So they're, they're patterns that increase, if that makes sense. Now, this can be a little, this illustration can, can help uh, some of you. So if you've ever driven up to the Rocky Mountains in the Colorado area, right, you can see mountains in front of you, and they all look like they're kind of lined up together, kind of right behind each other. But as you drive into the mountains, you start to see, oh, wait, this mountain's actually way in front, and the closer I get, I can see this mountain getting bigger, but that one's not getting bigger, right? And then you drive, and then, okay, that mountain, so you see these mountains that all appear like they're next to each other from the horizon. As you get close to them, you begin to see they're actually spaced apart in, in um in geography. Similarly, in, in biblical prophecy like Mark 13, some of these things will seem like they're right next to each other, but in the context of history, may be spaced very far apart. So what's the point? Why does Jesus tell us this? Well, Jesus tells us this for a reason. He says all of this for a reason so that we would not be alarmed by turmoil. Look, though, at the turmoil that Jesus predicts. He predicts wars. He predicts rumors of wars meaning a pattern of either we're going to be fighting or we're going to be rumored to be fighting. Conflict, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He, he talks about disaster, earthquakes will be there, uh, famines will be there. All of this would naturally lead us to be alarmed. And at first, I didn't understand what Jesus is doing. It's like he's saying, I'm going to say all these terrible things, but don't be alarmed. It was like when I was doing, I was doing some... Um, one of my therapies for my back, and the therapist was, was talking to me and saying, okay, for this adjustment, you're going to have to relax and be, you know, let your body relax so that I can, I can move your back around. I'm like, okay, cool, 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 cool. But the therapist was just chatting with me, and was, I was saying, hey, what are your plans for the fall? And, and they were like, oh, you know, uh, the fall's going to be, you know, be great. And I'm hoping to do this if the economy doesn't collapse. And I was like, what, what was that? And she's like, well, you know, the economy, okay. and then she started, you know, hyperinflation, you know, the gas runs of the 70s, and the Great Depression, you know, beginning to throw these comments out, and I'm beginning to be alarmed. And, and, she, and she's like, no, 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 just relax. I need to relax so I can do it. And, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm cool. I'm, I'm relaxed, you know. And then she kind of goes on, and then she goes, well, you know, and also, you know, obviously, and they're not telling anybody, but the Taliban got a nuke. You know, there's a nuke over there, and they got it now, and they're going to be running around. The and I'm like, what? The Taliban have a nuke? He's like, don't worry, just, I need you to relax, just be cool. Just be. And I'm, I'm like, I am not relaxed now anymore. You have alarmed me, right? And that's what it feels like with, with what Jesus is doing. He's telling us these things and then going, just relax, don't be alarmed. And you're like, why are you telling me this then? I, was, I would have been unalarmed if you had just to not talked to me about it. What is Jesus doing? Here's what he's doing. He says this, this, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, this must take place, but the end is not yet. What, what is Jesus doing? He's saying this. As you go into the future, you will encounter this, Christians. You will encounter wars. You will encounter pandemics. You will encounter disasters and earthquakes. You will encounter conflict in countries and outside of countries and between countries. You will encounter all of this, but I'm telling you this so that when you see these conflicts happening, these, this turmoil happening, you don't think, we're off the path. 
We're off the rails. God is no longer in control. The world is, is, is insane. We don't know what to do. He's saying, no, no, no. These are signposts that you are marching toward the inevitable conclusion of history, which is the victory of Christ and the restoration of all things. Right? Have you ever been hiking in the Franklin Mountains? I'm not a great like, outdoorsman, if you pick that up from being around me. And so when I'm hiking in the Franklin Mountains, I really depend on those little things that are like the trail markers, right? Sometimes it's just like a little stick with like a little flag or something. But man, there are times between trail markers that I think, now I've done it. The only ending to this day is me being on the news at 5 p.m. having to be rescued by helicopter because I'm probably going to die of dehydration within the next hour or two. And, and, and you begin to think, am I on the right trail? Is this the trail? Because there's parts of the Franklin's, that especially lately, where the, 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 the foliage and growth has happened, and you're like, is this a trail? Or is this like something else? And, and, and yet, when you come around the corner and there's that little marker, and you're like, okay, okay, we will not die this day, family. We will continue on. That is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, look, these are trail markers. And don't assume that if you see these things, things are out of control. Assume things are in control. Don't assume that things are off the rails. Assume they're on the rails because I told you this is what you'll encounter. So this is what Jesus wants for us. Christian, ask yourself, is your heart normally in a state of alarm? Because alarm should not be the default posture of the Christian heart. Sometimes I think even in the church, we, we almost say like, man, the most informed Christians are the ones flipping out and the most alarmed. Right? Did you see this? Do you see that? Did you, everything is going in America and Australia and, you know, and the Russia, and Russia's coming back and everything. You know, and, and you think, man, that's the most informed guy. He is definitely the most alarmed. The most informed Christians are the least alarmed because the events of the world that they see in turmoil around them are only signposts saying this must take place. Jesus is guiding this toward the end. And the end of history ends in the good of his people and the glory of God. So as you see this, as you hear this stuff on the news, Christian, be encouraged. Second, don't be anxious about opposition. Tighten your grip on Christ. You're like, it gets better? Oh, it gets worse. Verse 9, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. But say, whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, this has a particular meeting, as we're talking about. The first birth plane, the particular meeting for the disciples that Jesus is talking to, for, for Peter, James, John, Andrew. Out of this group of four disciples, tradition holds that three of them are martyred. The fourth one, they attempt to martyr by putting him in a boiling uh, thing of oil, and he survives, and that's why he goes to Patmos and writes the book of Revelation, because they couldn't figure out how to kill him, Right? It's rough. It gets rough for these disciples. You read the book of Acts. This is what happens in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. The gospel goes out. 
all of a sudden, there's opposition. All of a sudden, the Jewish leaders are against them. All of a sudden, they're being beaten. In Acts 7, Stephen is the first martyr for the Christian faith, and God indeed does give him words to say, and he powerfully proclaims the gospel as he is stoned to death. This, Jesus says, is what Christians will experience. And brothers and sisters, one of the applications is we must be aware of our brothers and sisters around the world for whom this experience would be absolutely foreign. The ability to freely gather, proclaim the name of Jesus, invite anyone with no fear of repercussion in the community is a treasure. In, in our family of churches, we're, one of the things I've been encouraged by lately is that we're starting a, a pastor's college uh, to train pastors in Ethiopia. It's happened just in the last year or two. And so I got this email describing like, oh, the pastor's college is starting up and, and had the pictures of the students. I'm like, oh, yes, I'm going to take these guys. I want to pray for these guys over this next year. And I get to the bottom and there's like four or five guys that are just like the, you know, the blank Facebook profile picture and a first name. And you read further and, and basically these brothers are brothers operating in Muslim areas. They're, they're, trained, they're, they're from and are going back to Muslim communities for whom their picture and name being out there would be a death sentence. Right, this is occurring. This is happening right now in our world. We must be faithful and prepared and understand that some of us in America will be called to go there. This is even in my notes, but, but the one thing, people are always like, oh, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. The one thing that we're real clear on that has to take place before Jesus comes back is that the gospel must be proclaimed in all nations, every tribe, tongue, language, and people. So if you're like, come Lord Jesus, maybe Lord Jesus is saying, all right, get out there. We know that's going to happen, and then Jesus will return. But in America, how should we respond to this? Well, I think in America, the last century or two, has, has not served us completely as Christians in this way. We've begun to think at times that the default cultural uh, view of Christianity is generally positive or at least neutral, right? Like we're surprised if we, we, you know, we, we do something and everybody in America doesn't, doesn't clap or get excited about it. I think we cannot think of America as neutral. We must, according to these words, be prepared for America to be in opposition to Christ. And if you talk to sociologists, one of the things that's happened is in previous decades and times in American society, there were probably genuine Christians, and then there was kind of a layer of cultural Christians on top of that, meaning there was a cultural pressure, like you had to kind of go to church if you were going to be a member of the community in many eras of America and places of America. And so people went to church, maybe we didn't know where they were in their heart, but they went and you know, they were positive toward Christianity. But that layer is burning or has quickly burned off. And I think the coronavirus thing has probably burned off the last layer of it. Because now in our society, there is no advantage to being part of a Christian community. There is a disadvantage in many ways. I mean, just, just watch the latest celebrity that comes out saying, hey, I wanna, I'm going to try to follow Jesus. And all of a sudden, the immediate attack is, what do you believe about the LGBT community? What do you believe about this? What do you believe about transgender people? You've got to give us an answer. And if you don't say what we want you to say, you will be exiled. I mean, a few years ago, uh, the company Mozilla, who runs the Firefox browser that a lot of us use, uh, that they appointed a new CEO to their company, and everybody loved him, perfectly qualified, perfectly good man in the company. What came out was one of the employees discovered on a public database that this uh, new CEO had given $1,000 to a pro-life cause 
to care for kids in California. And the response of the employees was an immediate walkout. So this guy was dismissed, not because he was a bad CEO, not because he'd done anything wrong, not because of Me Too or whatever, just because he donated to a pro-life cause. I think we have to be prepared. we got to be eyes open, Christians. we got to be eyes open that this, listen, if it gets better, we'll all be happily surprised. But I think in light of Jesus' words, we must be prepared that there will be opposition for following Christ in our generation and beyond. We, we already face opposition and being ostracized if we hold a biblically orthodox view on gender and sexuality. We will face opposition and continue to face opposition for saying that we have an exclusive source of truth that is true for everybody. It's not true for me. Yes, it is. It's true for you. If you say that, that's offensive. Our culture is okay with any belief and any view except for people saying, hey, there's only one way to heaven and we know the truth. Like, and all of a sudden the culture gets real intolerant of that. So be prepared, Christians. Uh, there's, there's many implications for this. We're going to be the crazy people that when our culture is like, okay, this is how we treat enemies and these are the people we treat and we cancel people. Christians are like, what about grace? What about people who, who get a chance to repent? And they're like, no, 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 they're, they're exile. Or for Christians who believe the insane thing, according to our culture, the insane belief that true racial reconciliation is only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ and cannot be fully achieved by any other means. Right? These things will cost us friendships. These things can cost us jobs. These things can cost us stability. And we, according to Jesus' words, must be willing to put it on the line for the sake of Jesus. So let me just encourage you. I just want to encourage you, especially people under 30. Um, how do I want to say this? Um, If you, under 30, believe that if you are just nice to the culture as a Christian, they will be nice to you, I think your eyes need to be opened. Because Christianity means being nice to people that will not be nice to you back. And so if you assume, like, well, if I'm just living nice and I'm doing the right thing, everybody will like me. No, it will not happen. Look at Jesus' words. What we're called to do is to love the people who hate us back. we got to be prepared for that. And yet, again, Jesus gives us this encouragement, don't be anxious. I don't know about you, but I'm anxious now. I'm thinking about the future of America, and I'm thinking about school, and you know, my heart's going, oh, Jesus says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't be anxious, because Jesus actually provides a specific hope, a specific help. He says the Spirit of God, the same Spirit of God that... that, that was there at the foundation of the world, will be sent by God to be with us, to dwell in us, so that in these moments of opposition, the moments of opposition become opportunities for gospel witness. The Spirit of God changes opposition moments to opportunity moments for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is exactly what you see with Stephen. That's exactly what you see with Paul. Paul's like, bring on the rulers. I get to preach the gospel to them. There's one guy in particular in Acts. He starts, they ask him, hey, what's your story? You're in jail. You're in chains. Paul starts preaching the gospel to him. And the guy says, in such a short time, are you going to try to convince me to become a follower of Jesus? And every Christian everywhere says, yes, yes. Every moment of opposition can, in God's timing, be an opportunity for countercultural love and witness. 
Like this, this should be the thing. When we are opposed as Christians, our response to, should be to more loudly proclaim at every opportunity that we love people and we love Jesus and Jesus loves us and Jesus loves people and lays down his life even for his enemies. Look, this is a stupid illustration off the cuff here, but you guys, any, if you have watched The Office, there's this one character that occurs every once in a while, uh, Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration. Anybody know Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration? Every time he appears in The Office, he shakes somebody's hand and says, Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration. And, and you're just like, what is the deal with this weirdo? Every, like, every human he's introduced to, he's just like, Vance Refrigeration. And then I read this, this thread of like, what is going on with Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration? Those are the rabbit trails I go down. And this one person is like, it's really simple. This is a documentary, quote unquote. And so every time he appears in the documentary, he wants to get the name of his refrigeration company out there, right? Thinking, okay, eventually people are going to watch this. So I want to make sure anytime I appear, I advance refrigeration, right? It's out there. That's the way the Christian should be with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we're opposed, when we get an opportunity, what should come out of our mouths is Ricky Christian. Ricky, saved by grace. Ricky, enemy of God, now friend of God. Ricky, recipient of insane grace. Ricky, recipient of a future and a hope he does not deserve, right? Not Ricky, then political party. Not Ricky, then cultural identity. Not Ricky, then national identity. Ricky, Christian, saved by Jesus. That is what Jesus is encouraging us to think about. So we need to hold tightly to Jesus. So in those moments, he's the first thing we give to those who oppose us. And by the way, side note, this works. In the first century, one of the ways Christianity spread in Rome was Romans watching Christians be fed to the lions. Week after week, they're clapping, they're clapping, and then week three or four, all of a sudden, they're like, what am I missing? Because this is the third week in a row that we've fed people to literal lions and they have not broken. And they've pointed to Jesus. And that actually historically was one of the ways the gospel spread in Rome. People are just, I don't understand what these people are. What are these people? Why would they stand there and tell the people killing them about the love of Jesus? Like, well, let me tell you about a guy named Jesus. That's exactly what he did for us. All right, third, third encouragement from Jesus. Don't be deceived by false messiahs. Tighten your grip on Christ. Now, I'm just going to tell you, man, in this next session we're going to read, you're going to have a lot of questions. We're not going to have time to get to all of them. And I'm going to be, try to be loud about the stuff I'm sure about and not as loud about the stuff that I'm not sure about, okay? So all humility, that's where I'm at as a preacher today. Verse 14. Oh, by the way, you're going to love this. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, Mark throws in, let the reader understand. And all of us go, oh, of course. I got it. Sure. Nobody has a question about that. He continues. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's in the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take aside his clothes. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of the creation that God had created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. Now, there's a lot here. Um, 
but I think I can offer a little bit of help, and then you can, you can go down the study trail of, of your study Bible and, and dig into this. Um, so first thing you should know, the abomination of desolation. That's a really interesting term. That term occurs three times in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, it's used to predict that a great, horrific, um, kind of abhorrent, gag-worthy sin is going to take place in Israel that will cause desolation. And by all accounts, this is what happens in the second century BC. So about 150 years before Jesus, Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple in Jerusalem by, listen to this, sacrificing a pig on the Jewish altar and then setting up an idolatrous altar to Zeus, right? And by most cultural accounts, that's what... Daniel was pointing forward to. So Jesus bringing up this, this idea of the abomination of desolation, he seems 150 years too late. Like, no, Jesus, that already happened 150 years ago. That was, by the way, if you're like, that's what kickstarted the whole Maccabee re rebellion and stuff like that. So what is Jesus doing? Is he just confused here? Well, a couple things are going on. Remember that metaphor of the birth pains that increase in intensity. So the birth pains begin in the first century. In 70 AD, remember the temple is destroyed, and when that happens, the Romans carry banners of their god, King Caesar, into the temple. The general enters the Holy of Holies, and they pick apart the entire temple, leaving no two bricks in place. That would meet the biblical kind of criteria of an abomination that causes desolation. But... It does not seem to fulfill everything Jesus is talking about in this passage. So it seems that's the type of event that will occur in history and there will be a final, decisive, definitive abomination at the end of history. Now, that is what seems clear. Why doesn't Jesus give us more on that? Because his agenda is not describing the details of the abomination of desolation, even though we're like, I'd like a little more on that, please. Jesus' agenda is that in that time of turmoil, false teachers will arise. Now, this is what happens in history. Once there's tumult, once there's uh, um, dangerous, uncertain times, people often look to false saviors, false messiahs. This is what happens in Latin America all the time. There'll be turmoil in a country. People will turn to a powerful dictator who promises to give them what they want. It happens over and over throughout history. Jesus says, as it gets more tumultuous, even Christians will be tempted by this. They'll see somebody kind of like Jesus and be tempted to go with him and think, okay, well, this guy's flesh and blood. Let's follow him. Jesus, the guy in the sky, I don't know if he's coming back. And Jesus is saying, no, no, don't go after counterfeits. Jesus' encouragement is to grip more tightly who he is and the pattern of discipleship that he has given his disciples, right? And, and the only way to avoid a counterfeit is to know the real thing, right? If you're a bank teller and you're trained to look for counterfeit money, there's a few times that I've had to hand in real crispy bills to the bank in my lifetime. And, and that real crispy looking bill, the tank bank teller takes and looks up and looks under the thing. And, and, and I'm, we used to wonder, how do they know what to look for? The way you train bank tellers is by looking at real bills and knowing exactly what's inside a real bill and then comparing a counterfeit bill to it, right? 
So similarly, what Jesus is saying is, don't go after the counterfeit. Remember who I am. In fact, that's actually what the gospel of Mark is. It's, it's a record of who Jesus is and his pattern of discipleship so that Christians would not be deceived. So you might have a guy, he can do some miracles. He claims he's seen a vision, right? He claims he's got a new revelation. He claims a certain angel came and talked to him. And, and some people are like, oh, well, maybe he's right, right? No, Some of it doesn't exactly line up with the New Testament, but he seems right. No, right? Jesus is saying, know the real thing. So here's where I want to end here. There are, there's a particular phrase in here that's interesting. In, what is it, in verse, uh, let's see here. Yeah, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Do you see that? This is interesting because you think, okay, well, then it's up to us to somehow endure to the end. It's up to us to have a strong enough grip on Christ that at the end where all these things are happening, false messiahs, wars, tumult, earthquakes, coronavirus, all that stuff, it's up to us. We've got to hold tight to this thing. Otherwise, if we let go, we're going to die. Remember who is speaking to the disciples. Uh, John 10, Jesus supplements that encouragement to hold tight till the end with this encouragement that Jesus says in 1028, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is calling us as disciples to grip tightly to him, but he is also telling us, I grip more tightly to you than you do to me. He's encouraging them. He's calling them to endure to the end, to be ready, to be on guard, to hold tight. But he is also saying, as he describes this, he's not a passive participant in history. It's not as though Jesus is like all of us, just trying to navigate the twists and turns, the seas of life, the waves are going up and down. And Jesus is like, well, I'm doing my best to pilot the church through this. No, what Mark reveals to us is not Jesus as a pilot trying to navigate through the waves, but Jesus as the Lord of the waves themselves the one who is bringing all things to a conclusion at the end of history, the son of man that will speedily return, as we will see like next week, and restore his people and usher in a new creation. That is Jesus speaking to them. He says, I grip you, grip back. I'm holding on to you, hold on to me. Look, I'm gonna end with this. There's a... Um, I started talking about the Korean War era and the, the danger and uncertainty of that era. And it really was uncertain. Nobody could have predicted World War II, what happened at the scale it did, and yet it did. Nobody could have predicted the advent of nuclear weapons and the ability to destroy a city in moments. Nobody could have predicted the, the coming quick uh, uh, confrontation between the Soviet Union and the United States. And so in the midst of this period of tumult and turmoil, um, there's a science fiction writer named Isaac Asimov, and he creates a hero for the moment. Our heroes always say interesting things about the culture they come from. In that moment of uncertainty, Isaac Asimov created a hero named Harry Seldon in this book series called Foundation. And Harry Seldon wasn't super strong. He wasn't super fast. He wasn't super, you know, uh, whatever. His ability was that he could use math to predict the future and help guide humanity through the years. And I think it's so interesting. Out of all this turmoil in the 60s and in the 50s, like the, the longing of the human heart was, man, I really wish there was somebody who could actually see the future and help us navigate through it. Right? That longing of the human heart. And by most accounts, Asimov 
expressing that longing never found what Scripture describes, which is the one who knows the future and more than that, holds the future. Brothers and sisters, as we hear the news, we long to know that we will be okay. And as we will see next week, the Son of Man himself has a grip on us. Our response then should be to tightly grip him back. Now, if you're not a Christian, I just want to encourage you today, you long for this. You long to be able to navigate life and find a safe harbor. You long for a pilot to pilot you through life. And culture offers all kinds of different ideas. You got to do it. You can find somebody to do it. You need to find the love of your life. They'll do it. You're going to have kids. That'll help you do it. Like uh, all these ideas for this is how you get through life, this tumultuous life. The, the, the offer of Christ is so much better than what our world offers. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who are anxious. Come to me, all, all who face uncertain, tumultuous times, and I will grip you and carry you. And do you know how we know that Jesus will carry us to the very end? Because Jesus, in Mark 13, is on his way to the cross. And in his grip are the people of God. And on the cross, he will go to the cross and suffer and die for the people in his arms to trade places with them that he might be the, un- the righteous given for the unrighteous, that they might be righteous in him. And if Christ did not let go of his people on the cross, do you think anything in history will loosen his grip on you, Christian? Do you think there's any event that could happen at any time, anywhere, that could make Jesus drop you? No. If he carried you through the cross to the empty tomb on the other side, he will surely bring us home. Amen. That's what we're going to talk about next week. So let's stand and pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would feel the encouragement, the charge from your word right now that we are to tighten our grip on Jesus. Lord, may we, in the tumultuous days ahead, have a reaction every time the world around us seems out of control, every time it seems uncertain, every time some new event happens that we did not expect, rather than turning to alarm, rather than turning to anxiety, may we turn to Christ. May we see the signposts along the way. May we see opposition as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. May we faithfully hold on to you through these days. But God, may we rest in the fact that you hold on to us. That the one who spoke Mark 13 takes his people to the cross where he pays for their sins and clears their debt and brings them to life. Or may we hold on to you trusting that you do a far better job of holding on to us. And I pray for that in the name of Jesus. Let me, let me just add one thing before we sing here, guys. This is just on my heart. I think so often in tumultuous days, we get addicted to news and news feeds and the stuff around us. We feel like, man, if I could just know a little bit more about the future, then I'd be able to navigate it. And what I've found in my heart often I noticed this pattern in me. I I was waking up every day as I was brushing my teeth, listening to the news, and then I would try to recover reading my Bible. Until one day the Lord just put his finger on that and said, why do you think you start the day anxious? And I realized the voice of the world and the tumult of the world was so loud that when I tried to turn up the voice of Christ, it didn't work. 
So what I've been trying to do is start my day with the voice of Christ. So what I want to encourage you this week, maybe take a, a, a break from news for a week. Maybe even take a break from Facebook for a week or IG for a week and, and turn the noise and distraction down and turn up the voice of Christ. And I will bet you anything, the alarm in your heart, the anxiety in your heart will diminish and your trust in Christ will grow. Let me just encourage you with that. Now let's sing as we put our trust in him.